Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Let's have all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I'm your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ2, the deuce. It sounds like you're playing whack-a-mole. There it is. Okay. <laughs> what are you yeah, drinking? Live from the boardwalk. What's the soup du jour? It, does, it, it sounds like I've got a, like a pair of dirty socks stuck in my commode is what that actually sounded like. Um, <laughs> the, today's recording snuck up on me. I was I was actually gonna run to the little beer store and get a beer, and you text and like, are you ready? I was like, oh crap, it's not <laughs> so. I'm actually just drinking tea, unfortunately. Okay. All not right. that there's anything wrong with tea, but it's not it's not beer. That's what I'm drinking is tea. That's what I always drink. So tea or ginger ale, no water for this girl. All right, and then as always, as well, we have Mister Will the Thrill. To that I say greetings and salutations. Are you just? Uh, I heard nothing. Heard nothing. It didn't come through. That is so disappointing because it sounded great through my headphones. No, oh, well. nothing, nothing. You'll have to suspend your disbelief. Picture a, a just crisp crack of a terrapin pastime ale, and you'll get a good mental visual. Awesome! Excellent. Thanks for that. Terrapin makes good stuff. That they do. I think they're based near us in Atlanta. I think I drove by a place called Hooch, and I thought I'd tell you about that. Yes, but there's a place we got to go next week. Um, is Hooch off the interstate next to an adult bookstore? Because it might be a different t- kind of place entirely. <laughs> I don't think it was. Or an everything okay. cover band? Wow. By the way, uh, for the other show that I helped produce, Basic, the host, Jen Cheney, actually knew who the band Everything was. And it scared wow. me. I'm like, no one knows who the band Everything is. They were one of my favorite bands of all time. And here she is. She knows it. They have tens and tens of fans. <laughs> and I'm six of them. <laughs> we played one of their songs, didn't we, one time? Pretty sure we did. On one of our Slap Nuts episodes, I don't remember what the topic was, but I, I distinctly remember something about a song about Hooch. I don't know. I would have to go back and listen. Like something I don't... about She Got the Hooch. I mean, that might just be a core memory I in can't imagine brain. I would have heard that anywhere but here. No, you would have heard it on the radio. They actually played that on the radio, and it yeah. was in a couple movie trailers, too. But that's like 
the only song they would have played. They never had a follow-up hit. Nope. I think Supernatural is a completely underrated. Yeah, I'm drinking um, tea today, so I don't. Th- I don't think I'm drunk or making it up. But we'll, you know, we, we can uh, we can review the tape. You could still have enough alcohol in your system that you would be drunk, though. <laughs> That's entirely possible. Yeah. You're not wrong. We don't have anybody to talk about passing this week, which is great news. Thank goodness. I do actually want to start out by talking about something that happened two episodes ago on a show called The Last of Us, because Mm. I love Linda Ronstadt. This was a weird week for music because we had Linda Ronstadt making a resurgence on The Last of Us, which my brother doesn't understand what streaming is, but you're going to have to figure it out since they did that King of the Hill reboot. On Hulu, God, right? Yeah, I, I got to find somebody that's got Hala or whatever that thing's called. <laughs> oh, sweet Jesus. Is that what it's on? It's going to be on Hala? No, this is, uh, this is on something else. This is on HBO Max. Oh, it's on Hobomux. You, you're trying. That's <laughs> Hobo all that Max. It's a different channel. It's on Hobomax, yeah. But Linda Ronstadt should be having a resurgence now because they just used her song in the episode called Long, Long Time, which is the name of the song. And so I think it's going to happen where she's going to get the Kate Bush treatment. I feel like that's going to be a thing now. You're going to see these what a, cycles. What an, achingly, what an achingly <clears throat> beautiful song that is, though. Oh, God, and they and used the it use in of such it, yeah. a way. It's killer. It was amazing. I'm glad that these these things happen where, you know, Metallica got a resurgence from some TV show. And of course, obviously, Kate Bush got a huge one last year. And now... But- Same TV show. That was both the same TV show. Probably will. Because I'm like, hey, this is great. You know, younger generations get to hear some really good music. On the other hand, it, it kind of pisses me off. They don't know who Linda Ronstadt is. Like, you don't know who Linda Ronstadt is. It's sort of the better late than never, right? Kate Bush. Yeah. But better late than never, I suppose. Okay. Also, I would like to, you know what? If there are little ears in the car, cover them or pause it for just a sec, because I'm going to say a naughty word <gasps> to the person that wrote the article for The Insider that said Bonnie Raitt won for Song of the Year for Just Like That, that few people have ever heard of her or it, you can go fuck yourself. I feel like they're getting already just completely blasted on social media. I mean... Yeah, no no one's ever heard of double-digit Grammy winner, Hall of Famer. (laughs) Has her own guitar. (laughs) Your career having Bonnie Raitt. The only female that has a Fender guitar named after her. Like, I'm sorry. Who are you, Daily Mail? The Daily Mail did it. The Insider did it. I'm sorry. You guys need to grow up. Because it was funny when that kid wrote Annie Lennox (laughs) and said, I think you'd be a great vocalist. You should try singing. You want to come be a part of this project? And then not knowing that she was in, you know, the Eurythmics or she was Annie Lennox. That was cute. But straight out saying Bonnie Raitt didn't deserve to win Song of the Year, you can kiss my Southern, Clay Aiken-loving, Broadway musical-watching ass because she's a queen and she deserved it. If you're a journalist and you're writing about music, you've you've completely discredited yourself Yeah. at, at this point. Like, I, there's... There's nothing you're ever going to write. You could write that the sky is blue. I'm going to go look out the window <laughs> at that point because I. Yep. There's nothing you're going to say that I'm going to take seriously ever again. Yes, little known Bonnie Raitt is like okay. She's had a 50 year career. She's won God knows how many Grammys. She's sold multiple millions of records. She's had multiple top ten hits. She's the only, or maybe at this point, one of the only, maybe still the only 
woman to have a Fender Stratocaster named for her. She's she's a rock and roll hall of famer. I, like, what in the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Yeah. No one no one's ever heard of this obscure indie artist named Bonnie, right? <laughs> like, oh my God. Oh God, that makes my head hurt. So while you were uh while you were pontificating, and I fully agree, Fender is set to introduce more signature guitars for female artists next year than its entire 70 year history. So making it for lost time. Do they do we know who? Well, no, it's I think it's guitars like for females. Oh, okay. Not signature? Yeah. There's several they could they need to catch up on, frankly, but whatever. How would Nancy Wilson not have one is my question. Like, that's just a crime. Unless she doesn't play Fenders. That's the only thing I can think of. I don't know. Maybe, but... It's Guitar World. It's an article from Guitar World. They're saying Samantha Fish, um, Anna Calvi, Courtney Barnett, Anna Popovich, Gina Gelson, Emma Ruth. Can we get Lita one? That's interesting. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Yes. Please. So there's that. That was part of the Grammys. And then the other thing that people were talking about was that the in memoriam left people off. Right. And the big one that people are really pissy about is Taylor Hawkins. Unjustly, as it turns out. I looked it up. TJ looked it up. And we discovered that the reason why Taylor Hawkins was left off this year was because he was on there last year. Yeah. Yes, because he was on there last year when the Grammys were pushed back to, to I think May was it May of last year? It was at least two months. Yeah, it, it was it was it was a couple of months later than normal. It looks like it was nine months ago. Yeah. So if you go back and you watch the the Grammy in memoriam for the 2021 season, he actually got a full minute, where roughly everybody else got about ten seconds. I think. So I mean, yeah. he had a big tribute. Now. There are a couple people that were notably left off, like Aaron Carter. Correct. I have one minor complaint about the Immemorial. The country portion, they had Casey Musgraves perform Coal Miner's Daughter, because obviously Loretta Lynn died within the last year. Mm -hmm. I have sung her praises on our podcast before. I love Casey Musgraves. She is awesome. But when it came to the work we did was hard at night, we slept because we was tarred which is how Loretta sings it. Casey turned it to hard and tired. And I'm like, yeah. Casey, you're from Texas. Come on. You can do this. <laughs> she said, the work we did was hard. At night we slept because we were tired. I said, no, no, no. Hard and tired don't run. You got well, to sing it like Loretta did, sweetie. It's, it's hard and tired. The, the actual outline for the dates to, to make it into the in memoriam is January 1st, 2022 to December 6th, 2022. So people like Modest Mouse's Jeremiah Green and Three Six Mafia's Gangsta Boo passed away on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. So they didn't make the cutoff. So hopefully they will be put into the next queue for the in memoriam. So if you're wondering why they were left off and then there's just not, okay, we, we did an in memoriam episode, but... We only, I think we each had 30 people, which is a lot. That's 90 people. I made a spreadsheet for us to pick our 30 people. It had close to a thousand people on it. It was crazy. So they have to choose. And if you go on to, I think, the Grammy program book, someone screenshotted the program book, 
His name is on the program book. Aaron Carter is in the program. And you can also, I think, go to Grammy's website and see the full list. But it is hard. But you also, for that, you want, you know, name recognition. You have that date you've got to follow. There's a ton of people that you have to list. So, I mean, like, the thing is, the Grammys are never going to nail an in memoriam because if they no, did, they can't. it would be it would be the whole show. It's, it's impossible. It's it's literally an impossibility. That would be the entire three and a half hour broadcast. That's all yeah. they do. Yeah. So like, I get it in certain cases. In some cases, I'm like, why? So, you know, I'm just I'm gonna leave I'm gonna leave the Academy alone on this one. Like it's they did do Taylor Hawkins, but they just did it last year, and people have. Such a short... And they did mention my, my old buddy Peter Cooper, actually, which I was very pleased to see. Saturday. That was nice. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, shall we venture into the world of Stephen Sondheim Part 3? We shall, but I have a very quick, funny story to share with you. Okay. I was absent for Part 2, but I was, I was around for Part 1. I was at work at the time, and there were still some people in the office, so I just shut the doors to my office so I could, you know, talk freely and, you know, be dumb. And the next day, uh, Brian, who works for me and who is a huge theater buff, said, uh, hey, what were you, what, why did you close your doors yesterday? You were, and you were being really loud. I said, oh, we were recording uh, an episode, you know, for, of the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast. He said, oh, oh who, who are y'all doing a series on now? And I, I, I said, um, it's some um, playwright or composer or some such, some guy. And he said, well, who is it? I said, Stephen Sondheim. And he glared at me and he said some composer, <laughs> some composer. You That's just amazing. called Stephen Sondheim. Some composer. <laughs> he was apoplectic. <laughs> That's amazing. I love Brian. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, that was it, that was great. Which I should know him. I was I was in two Stephen Sondheim plays at the Chester Little Theater growing up. So. Jesus, that's some hilarious. Some I, I should have done better than some composer. <laughs> wow. I'll tell Brian I said thank you for having my back. <laughs> I absolutely will. All right. So before we get into it, we should take our very first short sponsor break. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well... I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Thank you. 
Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And we're back and we're going to start with Stephen Sondheim. Ooh. All yeah. right. Yeah. So when we last left Stephen, he had just completed his run with West Side Story and with Gypsy. And they were huge. And Gypsy would be the last performance of Stephen's work that Oscar Hammerstein would see. He did not live to see Stephen's music performed on Broadway in a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. When Stephen celebrated his... 65th birthday, Oscar's oldest son, William, gave him a handsome pair of black velvet slippers that had belonged to his father. It was monogrammed with O on one foot and H on the other. And he was wearing them one day. And a visitor said that he and Oscar were wearing the same size shoe. And he said, oh, no, we don't. My foot isn't quite big enough. I I, I do have smaller feet. Mine are size nine. These are probably a size 10. The shoes seemed to fit him well, it was suggested, but Stephen was not, he was not one for metaphors. So he was like, no, no it, it's not a metaphor. It's just a pair of shoes. Hmm. In 1995, Stephen spoke on a television show called Some Enchanted Evening, which was in honor of what would be Oscar's 100th birthday. Stephen said that Oscar had affected his life in so many profound ways, both emotionally and professionally. He was a great teacher. He had a line in the show, The King and I, that said, by your pupils, you will be taught. Shortly before he died in 1960, the family and those close to him knew that he was dying. And so he and his wife, Dorothy, had a lunch and they all gathered to the house. Oscar had two piles of formally posed photographs and invited those who were there to choose one of them. Stephen said, I felt very peculiar because he was like a surrogate father to me, but I wanted to have one. And then sheepishly, I asked him to sign it. And of course, because our relationship had been so close, he looked baffled (laughs) as to how to sign it. 
And everybody else went into the dining room and he stood there trying to think. And suddenly he got a smile on his face like the cat that ate the canary. And then he scribbled something on the corner of the picture and then looked at me rather smugly and then went into the dining room. I read it and it said, for Stevie, my friend and teacher. Oscar Hammerstein died of stomach cancer on August 23rd, 1960 at his home in Highland Farms in Doylestown, Pennsylvania age 69, nine months after the opening of The Sound of Music on Broadway. The final song that he wrote was Edelweiss, Mm. which was added near the end of the second act during rehearsals. The lights of Times Square were turned off for one minute and London's West End lights were dimmed in recognition of his contributions to the musical world. He was cremated and his ashes were buried at the Ferncliff Cemetery in Hartsdale, New York. A memorial plaque was unveiled at the Southwark Cathedral, England, on May 24th, 1961. And then just for those who want to know, The Sound of Music was adapted, of course, into a 1965 film, which we watched, what, two days ago? Yes, we <laughs> and, did. And it won the Academy Award for Best Picture. And so that that is our end of the brief review of Oscar Hammerstein. You guys ready for your first fun fact? First fact. I'm ready for the first fact. <laughs> this has absolutely no bearing on our story whatsoever, but I thought that I'd throw it in because uh, Steve actually decided after he drove the woman that lived below him crazy by playing his piano at all <laughs> hours of the night, he actually decided that he was going to buy a house. And he found one in the Turtle Bay area of Manhattan. Now, I ask Will, and we're both pretty familiar with Manhattan, but I'm too lazy to Google it, and we don't know where Turtle Bay is. But it's apparently Manhattan. It's near Midtown, isn't it? I don't know. You said you didn't know where it was. I, I know I don't know where it was. I want to say it's near Midtown, but okay. It's, it's not important. Yeah, but he decided he found this house and he was like, I'm going to buy it. So he bought this house in Manhattan for $115,000. <laughs> okay. Do you guys want to know how much that house would cost today just based on the housing price now oh my lord at millions like oh god 15 million if nothing ever changed if the housing market stayed exactly the same as it was it would be one million one hundred sixty four thousand nine hundred two dollars and ninety cents in today's money at risk of sounding haughty that sounds cheap for manhattan <laughs> But that's what I'm saying. Like yeah. this, the Manhattan that he bought the house in. <laughs> Given today's housing market, it would be eight figures, right? Easy. I, you know what? I could probably look up where this house was and then just get like the Zillow for the I area. Think Turtle Bay is where the UN is, I think, or near it. That's uptown then. I thought, I thought it was more midtown. I thought it was like um, more eastern side of midtown, like on the other side of where they have an idea. Building. Why don't you uh, take me to New York? I think we can do that. We had a great time when we went last time. (laughs) Yes, we did. All right. So when he moved into his house, he didn't realize that his next door neighbor was Catherine Hepburn. What? Wow. And she was just not the one to suffer for Stephen's art. (laughs) One day he, he heard a knock on his door and his neighbor, Catherine Hepburn, was bare feet, this angry red faced lady and told him, you have been keeping me awake all night. And uh, she was actually practicing at the time for her musical debut in Coco. 
I remember asking Hepburn why she didn't just call me, but she claimed not to have my phone number. And I guess that she just wanted to stand out there with her bare feet suffering for her art. I just, for some reason, like knowing how tough Catherine Hepburn was, she was probably wearing like no shoes. It's a great image. Because she would rather step on nails and use that as character growth than like, just put your shoes on, ma'am. Now this time, Stephen was able to knock back a few drinks because he had started drinking bourbon in school. And unlike some authors, he actually found that it stimulated his creative process rather than bring it down. He also didn't want to cook unless his friend Luis was there. I'll get to who that is in a little while. It might not even be this episode, but he was also smoking one or two packs of filtered cigarettes a day. I mean... <laughs> and and he still tended to stutter when his thoughts went too fast, but he never bit his nails, although he tried to see what that was like. So he's kind of a neurotic guy, like, but I kind of love it. In fact, he was playing the piano and he would always make sure that his nails were clipped really short because apparently there's nothing more painful than striking your fingernail on a key. Now, I don't know if that's true, but if we have any of our... If you have any piano players out there, please write us rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com and let me know what that pain is like because I'm really interested because... I'm going to argue that's not the most painful thing in the world. What do you think it is? I'm going to argue I could name much more painful things than hitting your nail on a, on a piano key. Does it involve <laughs> wanking you involves, in the nuts? It involves throwing stars in your tank. Uh, okay. It's one would imagine, yes. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to need you to say that clean one more time just to make sure I got what you just said. Yeah, I'm telling you that it involves a uh, ninja throwing star in your tank. I promise you that would hurt worse than nail on key. Okay, I have questions, <laughs> but I'm not going to ask any of them. It's probably best. Leave that, let that one go. <laughs> All right. So, by the way, I whacked well in the nuts the other day. It was hilarious. <laughs> I didn't find it very funny, interestingly enough. <laughs> It was a cat toy and I smacked him with it. It was amazing. I was just getting up, like walking away from the coffee table and suddenly, wang. And I'm like, what the? <laughs> because whacking somebody in the nuts is never not going to be funny. I'm sorry. Out my mouth. <laughs> uh, all right. Now I need to introduce you to someone who is going to be important for the, the next few upcoming shows. And his his name is Bert Shevelov. Shevelov? If I'm not pronouncing that correctly, I'm going to blame the pronunciation guide that I looked up because that's what they said. It is S-H-E-V-E-L-O-V-E. Shevelov or Shevelov, but they said Shevelov because I was like, oh, like Chevrolet. But I'm just hmm. going to call him Bert and that's where this is going to end. <laughs> Before serving as an ambulance driver in the war, he had been at Yale as the head of the Student Dramatic Society and had put on a performance of Aristophanes' Frogs in the Yale swimming pool. <laughs> That's funny. Which I'm going to say is ingenious. I love it. After which he proceeded to write more shows. He wrote the lyrics and some of the sketches, as well as a review called Small Wonder, which was really successful and introduced future stars. And I'm going to be a jerk because I don't know who some of these people are like Tom Elwell or Tom Ewell and the dancer and choreographer Gower Champion. 
Stephen said that he went down to see a show called The Month of Sundays, which starred Nancy Walker and Richard Kiley and opened in Philadelphia. And he went because he wanted to see the set, which was supposed to be like a very heavy set. It was supposed to be a really impressive set. So he actually went down to check that out. And Bert, the director, was responsible for that. Stephen asked him how he thought the show was going. And Bert said, well, I'm polishing a shit here. Well, I'm polishing it here and I'm polishing a little there. The trouble is the more you polish shit, the more it looks like shit. <laughs> How true. At Yale, Bert had done a musical based on the plays by, is it Plautus? Plautus? Plautus. What's the play? The Braggart Warrior. I think it's Plautus, yeah. Okay, Plautus. These old words are hard. New words are also hard. All words are hard. All words are made up. <laughs> So he wrote the play, The Braggart Warrior, which he always wanted to be a musical. So after Gypsy and becoming friends with Bert, he went to work on something called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. That's the name of the show. It is. Thank you, Ryan George. <laughs> and he continued to work on it until the beginning of 1962. The problem was they went through a bunch of producers and directors. Jerry Robbins kept saying yes and then no and then yes and then no. And so they were like, screw it. And they went to Joshua Logan, who wanted more naked boys and things like that. And so Stephen actually offered it to Hal Prince. And Hal said, listen, kid, you know me, I hate farce. So then they brought on David Merrick to produce and they were trying to get Jerry Robbins direct. Jerry said, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll do it, but I won't do it with David. So basically, they had to do this like tightrope walking thing to get David out of producing. It was a mess. So at the time, they were there without a director, and then they went without a producer, and then they had a producer come on board, and then they decided to ask George Abbott, who was actually 75 at the time. Jeez. And he had done Call Me Madam, Wonderful Town, the Pajama Game, which I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know what the Pajama Game is. And of course, Damn Yankees. And the first reaction to the show was that forum was way too long. And that was pretty much obvious to everybody because it had a runtime of about four hours. Shit. Which that's, I love musicals, but even for me, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's long. And so... How it was originally written was, of course, going to have to be cut down. So they needed to cut it to be about two and a half hours, which is, that's standard for a Broadway show these days, unless it's Come From Away or Six, which is just carving in at 90 minutes. They originally cast Milton Berle, and he was supposed to have a leading role and claimed that some of the best work had been cut out of the show. And so when they did that, he was like, I'm out. I'm sorry. You cut all the best parts. I can't. I can't abide by this. So that's when Zero Mostel stepped in. And you know who Zero is, don't you? Of course, yeah. From the producers. Absolutely. Yeah. And he yeah. was in Fiddler on the Roof. Yep. So during out-of-town tryouts, the show attracted little business and it didn't play well. And Jerome Robbins called in to give advice and make changes. The biggest change Robbins made was adding a new number to replace a song called Love is in the Air and introduced the show as a bawdy, wild comedy. Stephen Sondheim wrote the song Comedy Tonight for the new opening, and from that point on, the show was a success. It, of course, was directed by George Abbott and produced by Hal Prince, despite the fact that he hated farce. <laughs> and it was choreographed by Jack Cole, uncrediting stage by Robbins. So uh, he did get, Robbins did get no credit for 
choreographing and staging. Really? I don't think so, at least according to the article that I pulled this from, he did not. So if that's incorrect, please don't email me about it and just know I tried my best. The scenic and costume design was by Tony Walton. And actually, it's awesome because the wardrobe is on display at the Costume World Broadway Collection in Pompano Beach, Florida. Hey! Two things. Will's parents live in Pompano Beach. That they do. And why would you put the costume Broadway collection in Florida? Is it because... Is it because... Think about who goes to theater. I mean, that's true. <laughs> They're all... It makes perfect sense. I mean... it's oh, amazing. Yeah. The musical actually featured a pretty, pretty good cast of seasoned performers, including Jack Guilford, who was apparently one of Zero's friends, but I think he was also blacklisted. I think that was during the HUD era. But apparently Jack Guilford was one of the blacklist members. Hmm. David Burns, Ruth Cobart, Raymond Walburn, and John Carradine. And I'm wondering if that's any relation to, is that, Travis would probably know this answer. John Carradine, is that the father of Keith and David? I believe so. I wish that the collective knowledge of all mankind was available at my fingertips to ensure that that's <laughs> correct. They look alike. They look familiar. David and Keith, yes. Yep. David, Keith, yep. and Robert. Um, yep. And you met one of them, right, LD? Yes, Keith. We both did. Keith. Keith. Well, you met him in Chester, and I met I him did. in California. Wow. Yes, he came to the little hometown of LD and I when we were we children to uh, film a miniseries called Chiefs. So I am the only rock and roll event member to have not met a Carradine. It's it's okay. It's to okay. Have, to have it's not okay. met Keith Carradine. A, a well, Carradine. We'll, we'll have to work on that. Now, here's another fun fact. Another fun fact. In the original production, Karen Black was actually cast as the ingenue, but <gasps> she was replaced out of town. No kidding. Yeah which we were actually talking about Karen Black because she did the Trilogy of Terror. That she did. And she also did House of a Thousand Corpses, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, she was Mama Firefly, the original Mama Firefly. The original. And I think, was she, because they look similar, was it Jennifer Coolidge that replaced her in... I believe they cast Jennifer Coolidge, yes. Three from, was it Three from Hell? Why am I all of a sudden yes. forgetting all but of no, my no, horror? It might have been even um, the one Devil Rejects because I Devil's think Karen Rejects. Black passed away. Yeah. Yes. No, Devil's Rejects. That was, I was like, Three from Hell is the last one. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So Karen Black. Yeah. Insanely talented actor and actress. And she is gorgeous. And she is also sadly passed. But the first Broadway production for which Sondheim wrote the music and the lyrics was this show, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. It opened up in 1962, ran for a really impressive 964 performances. The show won six Tony Awards, including Best Musical, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Best Book, Best Director, and the score did not even earn a nomination. So from that show, we're actually going to take our first music break, and we're going to listen to a little song called Comedy Tonight. Wasn't this one revived with Nathan Lane? Yes. Something familiar, something peculiar, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Something appealing, something appalling, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. 
Nothing for kings, nothing for crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Oh, situations, new complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Tragedy tomorrow, comedy tonight. Something convulsive, something repulsive, something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Something aesthetic, something frenetic, something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Nothing of gods, nothing of fate. Weighty affairs will just have to wait. Our principal characters live. On this street, in a less fashionable suburb of Rome, in these three houses. First, the house of Erroneus, a befuddled old man, abroad now in search of his children, stolen in infancy by pirates. Something erratic, something dramatic, something for everyone to tonight. Second, the house of Lycus, a buyer and seller of the flesh of beautiful women. That's for those of you who have absolutely no interest in pirates. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. And finally, the house of Senex, who lives here with his wife and son. Also in this house dwells Suitless, slave to his son. Suitless is probably my favorite character in the piece. A role of enormous variety and nuance, and played by an actor of such versatility, such magnificent range, such, let me put it this way, I play the part. Something familiar, something peculiar, something for everyone at coming tonight. Something that's gaudy, something that's gaudy, something for everybody's day. Pantaloons and tunics, partisans and eunuchs, funerals and chases, baritones and basses, panderers, philanderers, cupidity, timidity, mistakes, fakes, rhymes, rhymes, tumblers, rumblers, It's great lyrics, very clever. It's very quick and it's very clever. And you can hear it's unmistakably Stephen Sondheim. Like it's... It's actually a song I've heard, which I didn't expect to happen in this series. <laughs> really? Well, yeah, I, I was I was in a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. So I've heard the song. I am amazed by this. Shocked <laughs> and amazed. Funny enough, here's another little fun fact just to drop in. Another little fun fact just to drop in? In the film version... So what we just heard was the film version. It actually got a, what do you call those? Revival. Those are the words. Words are hard. It got a revival. And it actually starred Whoopi Goldberg. Oh, she was in the revival. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, which is really cool. So I'm just glad that my brother heard a song that he would know. Did you play any from Gypsy in the last one? I would have known those. That was our ending song. Everything coming up. Everything's coming up roses. Yep. There you go. Yep. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of your 35-year-ago theater <laughs> Jeez, when you say that, it makes you sound really old. 35 years. Good God. You're five years older than me. 
You're old. <laughs> Does it hurt when you sneeze? It hurts when I walk sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I was taking a shower a couple days ago and reached down to get my shampoo and I pulled a muscle in my leg. So yeah, that's where I'm at in life. <laughs> what happened to your leg? Did you, did you fall down some steps, get hit by a car? No, nah, I picked up the Prell bottle. Shut your mouth. I would never use Prell. The head and shoulders are a little heavier than I thought it was going to be. Didn't put my knees into it. <laughs> Pert all the way, baby. Hey, LD. Sorry to cut in here, but I think we need to take a short intermission for the fine people who sponsor this program. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we are back. All right, let's get back to the life and times of Stephen Sondheim. So Sondheim, at this point, had participated in three straight hits. So he had West Side Story, he had Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, and he had Gypsy. But his next show, 1964's Anyone Can Whistle, ran for a staggering nine performances. Jeez. So it was a complete nine. bomb. Nine. Yeah. Nine. I was about to say, I've never heard of that one. Yeah, there's probably a reason for it. But there is one good thing that came out of it. One good thing? Which was that it introduced the world to Angela Lansbury. Huh. Didn't know that. A little background on this one. Anyone Can Whistle was a musical with both the music and the lyrics written by Stephen and a book by Arthur Lorenz. Described as a satire on conformity and the insanity of the so-called sane, the show tells the story of an economically depressed town whose corrupt mayor decides to create a fake miracle in order to attract tourists. The phony miracle draws the attention of an emotionally inhibited nurse and a crowd of inmates from a local asylum with a doctor and a doctor with secrets of his own. So... Bum, bum, bum. It sounds terrible. And I will watch. That sounds busy. It sounds very busy. And you know what, and, though? And also bad. Also, though, dancing and singing nuns, not a bad thing. It's proved several times over that it's actually pretty darn good, including with The Sound of Music and Sister Act. Ah, oh, I wish I could see Sister Act on the stage. Anyway. <laughs> and, uh, and Blues Brothers. Yeah. Yes, yes. Oh, and The Nuns. Bring in the, in the nuns. Send in the nuns. And then they just announced that there's going to be a History of the World Part 2. And people are mad because they're like, but it was just a joke. I'm like, yeah, but it's a joke. I've waited 46 years to come true. Somebody had a hit. Was it the, the, it was the singing nun, wasn't it? Was it? 70s, 60s, 70s, the singing nun, maybe? Singing nun? Oh, it was, Somebody oh, look up Dominique. The, do Dominique. Yes, Bear, you yeah. know the song. They, yeah. Sing, yeah. American Horse, yeah, that's, yeah, Ameri- that's the, sing- the singing nun, right? Yeah, American Horror Story uh, used the song several episodes, several seasons. Oh, it was, it was season yes. two, it was prominently featured. No, it was actually featured several times. I just remember them playing I, it all the I, time. I think it was in three three episodes, or three three wonder, seasons. I wonder how often clergy of any denomination have had a top 40 hit. That's, that's got to be pretty rare. <laughs> uh, we should add that to the list of slap nuts. Weird well, people who have charted. The Gregorian <laughs> chants. 
Well, yeah. there have been, I was going to say Gregorian chants in Sadness Part 1. For sure. Does Reverend Horton Heat count? No, probably not. Okay. I, I don't think he's an actual Reverend, but... Uh... All right, well, getting back to this episode before I lose complete control. <laughs> I've lost control. Following a tryout period in Philadelphia, anyone can whistle open up at the Majestic Theater, which I think that's where it was ha- like that. I think that houses Phantom until April 16th of this year. It opened on the 4th of April, 1964, and it received widely varied reviews, including negative notes from the New York Times and the New York Herald and closed after a run of 12 previews and nine performances. Ouch. Yeah. In the decade since its closing, Anyone Can Whistle has seen relatively few productions, which is probably for the best. But one notable production included a 1995 concert version at Carnegie Hall and a pair of stagings in London and Los Angeles in 2003, which incorporated revisions and a 2010 concert staging for Encore program at New York City Center. Since it's gotten some age on it, it's actually become an acclaimed part of Stephen's canon and with song titles like the tune Everybody Says Don't and There Won't Be Trumpets have been performed widely. So like as pieces, it's popular, but as a show, it's not. This took a wild turn because no news of the show had appeared until July 14th that an article, the New York Times about Kermit Bloom Garden, where it discusses the four shows he was producing for the upcoming season. Two of them were maybes, two of them were definite. One of the latter was a Sondheim Lorenz musical now named Sideshow. In a letter to Bloom Garden, Lorenz wrote, I beg you not to mention the money problems or difficulties to Stephen anymore. It depresses him terribly and it makes it terribly difficult for him to work. It is so damn hard for him to concentrate when all the atmosphere is filled with gloom and forebodings about whether the show will get the money that they need to go on. Spare him the gory details. So, you know, there were money problems that plagued the show. This behavior is considered unusual for Arthur who runs contrary to his current reputation. Stephen discovered that Lorenz hated doing backers auditions and he took over that responsibility, playing and singing more than 30. For those who don't know, backers auditions are where you perform parts of the show to try to get producers interested in the show so they will give you money to back it. Actually, there's a great series of episodes of the TV show, Smash, which cover this. Mm. So if, if you haven't seen the show Smash, it's really good. But for both Bombshell and Hit List, Bombshell, they do Lexington and 52nd Street for producers to try to get them interested in the show. So and this is great. They found 115 investors to back the $350,000 production, including Richard Rogers and Stephen's own father. Eager to work with both Lorenz and Sondheim, Angela Lansbury accepted the role despite her having strong misgivings about the script and her ability to handle the score. Also signed were Lee Remick, a name you should know as Nurse Faye Apple. And I think if you don't know who Lee Remick is, she was the mother in The Omen, correct? Lee Remick? I was actually going to ask you what else she was saying because that name's really familiar. Again, if we only had the knowledge of the whole Whatever world. Whatever would we do? She was the mother in Omen, in the Omen. 
I, th- I want to say she's still alive. Nope, she died in 1991. Oh, so <laughs> pretty much everyone in that movie's gone, including yeah. the director, sadly. Yeah. Oh, she was in The Running Man. Was she? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was in the TV movie for Damn Yankees. I want to say also, was she tapped for Carrie the musical? I'll look that up because that's going to be a harder find. But I want to say maybe she was tapped for that one because that was happening in the 80s. Hmm. Anyway, getting off track in my own brain. Lorenz wanted Barbara Streisand for the role of Faye, but she actually turned it down to star in something that I don't think anybody knows anything about these days. I mean, it was this little thing called Funny Girl. What? Which is, if you guys don't know now, it's currently running on Broadway with Leah Michelle in the role of Fanny Bryce. And news about that is everywhere. Yeah, oh my Highly God. Controversial. Yeah. I'm just not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. Following rehearsals in New York, the company started pre-Broadway tryouts in Philadelphia. And then, of course, the show suffered further setbacks when supporting actor Henry DeCost suffered a heart attack during the show's out-of-town tryouts and was replaced by Gabrielle Dell. Hmm. According to Sondheim, Lansbury was so insecure on stage and unhappy with her performance that we considered replacing her. Ironically, it soon became apparent that it had been her co-star, Henry, who had the heart attack, who was, you know, one of the old pros who made her feel like an amateur. The minute Mm. that he was gone, she started to shine. This was reflected in other reviews and Sondheim called those humiliating. And he called the audiences in those trials hostile. Yep. So that was the end of that. So 12 (laughs) previews and nine shows and then it closed. But we got Angela Lansbury out of it. So... Definitely net positive. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna complain about that because she is a queen. The next show we're gonna talk about is called Do I Hear a Waltz, based on Lawrence, and that's Arthur, and Lawrence play uh from 1952 called The Time of the Cuckoo was intended to be another Rogers and Hammerstein musical with Mary Martin in the lead. And if you guys don't know who Mary Martin is, and I'm I'm sure like here's the thing. I'm so sure that the older folks in our audience are going to know who Mary Martin is because I'm almost positive that my brother knows who Mary Martin is. Travis, do you know who Mary Martin is? I've heard the name, but I can't, I cannot definitively tell you who she is or what she did. She was the original Peter Pan. Oh, that's right. Okay. There, yes. Yeah. I figured of like all the names I'm throwing out, chances are, you know, Angela Lansbury and Mary Martin. <laughs> I knew Lee Remick, but yeah, most of the days I'm just going like, Okay. Alrighty. It's it's fine. Like even me as like a Broadway buff, like I love this stuff. There's some names in here that I'm like, I don't even know how to pronounce this, much less know what they did. So it's okay. <laughs> now, a new lyricist was needed, of course, because of the passing of Oscar. And Mary, who was Lawrence and Roger's daughter, asked Sondheim to fill in. Although Richard Rogers and Stephen agreed that the original play did not lend itself to becoming a musical, they began to write a musical version. The project had a lot of difficulties, including Rogers' alcoholism. Sondheim later called it the one project he truly regretted writing, given the reason why he wrote it, which was a favor to Mary, basically as a favor to Hammerstein. As an opportunity to work again with Arthur, and an opportunity to make money, which were not reasons in his mind to write a musical. He decided then to only work on what he could write when he could write the music and the lyrics. So he did not want to just write one or the other. He wanted to write 
both of them. And I can kind of get where he's coming with that. I mean, we're seeing sort of a resurgence of teams of writers now, especially with like Pasek and Paul, who've had great success. Oh, yeah. But he wanted just to do both. He wanted to be a one-man band. They had decided to do anything to bring the show to life. And Herbert Ross, who had added such valuable dimension to anyone can whistle with his choreography, was enlisted to create the dance numbers that they originally thought that they could get rid of, especially since they needed the first act scene on the Piazza San Marco, where the heroine sits alone, surrounded by tourists and Venetians, which we've been to. Yes, we did. That was where that church was with all the gold around it. It was a woman that was attacked by pigeons. That's that's, (laughs) sounds about right. I think I have a picture of that woman and she's just covered in pigeons. And I'm like, was that the Battle of the Bocellis too? That might have been. I think it was the Piazza San Marco. Yeah, it's beautiful though. It's gorgeous. Roger's position was that the casting of the heroine as young and pretty had pervasively made her less likable. He wanted to eliminate a crucial moment in the second act, which Leona gets drunk and tells a young wife that her husband had had a dalliance with a shop owner. I felt like this made our heroine unsympathetic, but author refused to remove the scene because it was in the original play. And that's a quote from Stephen. And of course, Stephen supported him. Rogers and Sondheim began to appreciate the gulf that separated them because their basic approaches were so different. Stephen recalled that he wrote the words for, we're going to be all right, displaying a cynical view of marriage that suggested that the wife and husband might find consolidation in an affair or two, including a homosexual one. Stephen said, I wrote the lyrics and Dick Rogers thought that these songs were wonderful. The next day he called me and we had lunch and he kept slamming the lyrics against his forearm saying, this will not do, this will not do, this will not do. And I kept asking him why. The truth was that he had taken the lyrics to his wife and she didn't like it. And Mm. he probably showed it to her out of enthusiasm, but it's got this stuff about sexuality in it. You know, the part about the affair being a homosexual one. And Dorothy Rogers was very straight-laced. And so she had him remove the offending lines, but they were subsequently restored, and they're the ones that are always heard. So basically, in that whole jumble of words I've said, Stephen wrote these lyrics, insinuating a gay romance, and Rogers took it home to his wife. His wife didn't like it because she's very straight-laced, and he took it out, and then it was put back in. I mean, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. But that wasn't the only issue that Arthur, Roger, and Stephen had. Arthur recalls one occasion where Stephen came on stage after having stayed up for 36 hours writing the song, Perfectly Lovely Couple, and he handed it to Rogers, and Dick said, this is shit. I'm not giving this to any of my singers. And that was in front of the whole company. Arthur said that he continued as Steve walked down the flight of stairs, leading from the stage, came down the aisle, and said, I'm through. I'm absolutely through. Rogers also threatened to quit. He accused Stephen and Arthur of being in league against him, And he was always implying that they were having some kind of affair. Stephen actually believed that Dick was jealous of the relationship that he had had with Oscar. So Stephen thinks that Dick was resentful of the the relationship that he had had with Oscar. The musical opened on Broadway on March 18th, 1965 at the 46th Street Theater and closed September 25th, 
1965, after 220 performances, at least it lasted longer than anyone can whistle. Almost got to your birthday. Almost got to my birthday. Dang it. But that's the birthday for House Sparks and somebody else. I know my friend Alex has got the same birthday too. But it starred Elizabeth Allen and Servio Fernacci. Other principal cast members included Carol Bruce, Madeline Sherwood, Julian Marie, Stuart Damon, and Jack Manning. Choreography was by Herbert Ross and costume and scenery by Benny Montessori. I'm going to say, I'm probably messing that name up. Sorry. Lighting by Jules Fisher. Lorenz rude the casting. He felt that Alan was too young and colorless and that Sergio couldn't act and ignored all the ongoing problems in favor of making his dream come true, which was to get this show that he wrote so many years ago off the ground as a musical. But most of all, he regretted the break in his friendship with Sondheim after the show. The musical received, and this is shocking, received three nominations for the Tony Awards, which was Elizabeth Allen. She was nominated for the Best Performance by a Leading Actress in a Musical, nominated for Best Original Score, and nominated for Best Scenic Design, but it lost in all three categories. Sondheim asked author and playwright James Goldman to join him as book writer for a new musical inspired by the New York Times article about a gathering of former Ziegfeld Folly showgirls. Originally titled The Girls Upstairs, that became Follies. After the failure of Do I Hear a Waltz, for which he'd written the lyrics to Richard Rogers' music, Stephen decided that he would only work on projects where he could write both the music and the lyrics himself. We covered that before. He asked author and playwright James Goldman to join him for this new show that he had read this article about. They decided upon the story about the ex-showgirls. Originally titled The Girls Upstairs, the musical was to be produced by David Merrick. We've heard that name before. He was ousted from a funny thing happened on the way to the forum because the man who ended up producing it didn't like him. David Merrick? I I've got, yes, I think I got that. Or the director didn't like David. So he said he would do it if it's complicated. <laughs> Jeez, theater is hard. <laughs> so it was produced by David Merrick and Leland Hayward in late 1967, but their plans ultimately fell through and Stuart Ostro became the producer with Joseph Hardy as the director. These plans did also not work out and finally Harold Prince, who had previously worked with Stephen, became the producer and the director. He had agreed to work on the girls upstairs if Stephen agreed to work on company. We'll get to company in just a couple minutes. We, in fact, end on company. Michael Bennett was the choreographer of Company, was also brought onto the project. It was Prince who changed the title to Follies. He thought, intrigued by the psychology of a reunion of old chorus and dancers, would love the play on the word Follies. Follies is a musical, obviously. The plot takes place in a crumbling Broadway theater scheduled for demolition, previously home to a musical review which is based loosely on the Ziegfeld Follies. The evening follows a reunion of the Weissman girls who performed during the interwar period. Several of the former showgirls perform their own numbers, often accompanied by the ghosts of their younger selves. The score offers a flavor of 1920s and 1930s styles, which evokes a nostalgic tone. You guys are going to hear this because, man, I tried to pick a good song that, I didn't think would put my brother to sleep, and that was hard. <laughs> the original Broadway production opened up on April 4th, 1971. It was nominated for 11 Tony Awards and won seven. The original production 
among the most costly on Broadway, ran for over 500 performances, but ultimately it actually became a bomb. It lost its entire investment. After 500 performances? After 500? Yeah. yeah. There are some shows that never recoup. How was the budget on this thing? Well, okay. There is a great YouTube channel called Wait in the Wings. And he recently did a video called What is a Flop? And he breaks down what he thinks is a pretty good mathematical equation for what makes something profitable. Because you have to think it's not just the actors. It's also you have to... The same show, Smash, they cover where you have to have permission by the person who originally choreographed it to use their choreography. Because remember in Bombshell, Christian Borrell has to go to Derek Wells and say, hey, can we use your choreography? I think it's technically he owns the choreography, right? Correct. But also you have the lighting people, box office workers, ushers, the janitorial staff, uh, lighting engineers, sound design, like musicians. It costs a lot of money a night to put on a Broadway show. So unless you're consistently selling your tickets at a price that can cover that, you can end up in the red real quick. Even that's, after 500 that's, shows, that's crazy. Well, that's what happened with Kiss Me Kate. That's what happened with Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. You can get to these shows that are ridiculously staged and they just, they basically outstage themselves. I mean, Broadway is not cheap to put on because all the other thing, which is a big thing, is you actually have to pay for insurance and you have to pay for the theater. That theater mm-hmm. is there to make money. So you have a contract with the theater. And it could be eventually if your show is not a absolute smash success with people falling out of the doors, you can lose money. I mean, it also was nominated for 11 Tony Awards, but it's still, they they lost their entire investment. Mm. This musical has had a number of major revivals. Several of its songs have become standards, including Broadway Baby, I'm Still Here, Too Many Mornings, Could I Leave You, and Losing My Mind. But those aren't the ones that we're going to listen to. We're going to listen to the song Live, Laugh, Love, and I'm just going to hope that my brother sucks it up and enjoys it. When the winds are blowing, yes, that's the time to smile. Learn how to laugh, learn how to love, learn how to live. That's my style. When the rent is owing, yes, what's the use of tears? I'd rather laugh, I'd rather love, I'd rather live. In arrears, some fellows sweat to get to be millionaires. Some have a sport their devotees of. Some like to be the chance at saving postage stamps. Me, I like to live, me, I like to laugh, me, I like to love. Some like to sink and think in their easy chairs. Of all the things they've risen above Some like to be profound By reading Proust and Pound Me, I like to live, me, I like to laugh, me, I like to love Success is swell and success is sweet But every height has a drop The less achievement the less defeat. What's the point of shoving your way to the top? Living, laughing, loving, you're never a flop. So when the walls are crumbling, 
Yes. Don't give up the ship. No. Learn how to laugh, learn how to love, learn how to live. That's my tip when I hear the rumbling. Yes. Do I lose my grip? No. I have to laugh, I have to love, I have to live. That's my trip. Some get a boot from shooting off cablegrams Or buzzing bells to summon the staff Some climbers get their kicks from social politics Me, I like to love me, I... Me, I don't like to love me Some break their asses passing their bar exams Lay out their lives like lines in a crowd. One day they're diplomats, well fully and convinced. Me, I like to love me. Violin run at the end is very almost like Twilight Zone sounding, isn't it? It kind of does. There's something it about does. it that seems like the Twilight Zone to me. It's, you know what, this is really, for me, like not knowing the staging of the show, it sounds very dark. It does, yeah. So, T, what did you think? I'm interested to hear your take. Um, <clears throat> I don't know that you want my take. Fair enough. All right. I didn't care. I, I didn't care for it. That's totally fine. I preferred unscanny Bob. Okay. All right. So in 1966, Sondheim semi-anonymously provided the lyrics for The Boy From, which was a parody of The Girl from Impanina in the off-Broadway review The Mad Show. The song was credited to Esteban Rionido, Spanish for Stephen's River Nest. Huh. <laughs> and in the show's Playbill, the lyrics were credited to Non de Plume. Hmm. Ellen Smithy. <laughs> yeah, basically. That year, Goldman and Sondheim hit the creative wall on the girl upstairs, and Goldman asked Sondheim about writing a TV musical. The result was Evening Primrose with Anthony Perkins. I'd never heard. Wow. Yeah. Hey, I've heard of Anthony Perkins. I know him. There you go. It was written for the anthology series for ABC Stage 67. It was produced by Hubel Robinson. It was broadcast on November 16th, 1966. According to Sondheim and director Paul Bogert, the musical was written only because Goldman needed rent money. That's that. <laughs> I mean, a job's a job, right? The network disliked the title and Sondheim's alternative, A Little Night Music. They didn't want that title or they agreed nope. on that? Okay. I, I don't think they wanted that title, which yeah, is it, weird. Yeah. <laughs> also in 1966, Stephen suffered another loss. His father, Herbert Sondheim, died August 1st, 1966, after a brief illness. And I looked and looked and looked and looked for any kind of information about 
the final years of Herbert, but it's sparse. It's very sparse. Now, a future glimmer of promise was offered when he wrote half a dozen songs for that teleplay, Evening Primrose. It was based on a short story by John Collier. The 60-minute tale focused on a secret community of people who take refuge from the world in a department store only to come out after it closes. Anthony played the central character, a poet. It's one of those rare gems that I want to find some footage for, maybe post it on our social media. So I think it'd be really interesting to see. I'd be curious to see what's out there. I mean, it, it's almost like it's very, like you said, it's very hidden. It's kind of yeah, and I almost think, cult. Yeah. I think the problem with that is it might have been recorded over. It's in some salt mine in like Brazil or something. <laughs> Possibly. All right, so we're going to hop back in time briefly for a time in 1958 when the suggestion by Arthur, Stephen actually made his first attempt to undergo psychotherapy. And this was something that we really haven't talked about. And I don't know if a ton of people know this, but most people won't be shocked by it. Stephen actually said, I was never easy with being a homosexual. Mm. So this is the first real time we talked about him being gay. He agreed that the social attitude towards folks like him would be, you know, bad. I have a question. Um, yeah. At this point, was it not even accepted in the theater community, in the entertainment field? It was even, even there, it was still sort of a... I, I think he just didn't talk about it. Like nobody, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, and in 58, the Stonewall riots hadn't even happened. The Stonewall riots happened in 69. Yeah. So you were looked on as a deviant if you were gay. And, and in some places, it was criminal behavior. And Stephen said, I don't think I knew more than maybe four homosexuals in the 1950s and 60s who were open. So I'm guessing I'm the fourth. I'm actually thinking about the one couple who were quite effeminate. So there was little to conceal. I knew a lot of homosexuals who didn't want to be known. Everybody knew that the theater was full of gay people, but nobody admitted to being so. And that's a direct quote from Stephen. So yeah, nobody just really talked about it. And I don't think people flaunted it. You know, there was certainly, I don't think, a idea of loud and proud in those days. Yeah, I think it was very, you did not talk about it. Nobody addressed it. It was kind of an elephant in the room. Yeah. For years, perhaps decades, almost none of his close friends and certainly none of his family had any idea that he was attracted to men. His half-brother, Walter, found out when the father of a high school friend who was a psychiatrist had a number of homosexual patients casually remarked that there was not a man in New York City who was loved more than your brother. All of a sudden, a lot of things fell into place for Walter after that statement. Also, you're a psychiatrist? Isn't that kind of doctor-patient confidentiality? Yeah, pri privilege sort of. Yeah, you're sort of... Like you outed somebody. You're not really supposed to talk about issues with other Patients with other patients. I also think this yeah. is a period where psychiatry was not the field it is today. I mean, we're a few decades away from basically lobotomies at this point. Right. Yeah. You know, mental health was not something that was taken seriously. And if you were a psychiatrist, I think you probably, I'm not saying all did, but I, I don't think you played by the same rules that one would today. I'm just saying that. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I don't think the, the world had known about Rose Kennedy's lobotomy at this point. like Probably not. But that was a, a family with money hiding something, you know? But yeah, no, medicine was still kind of scary at this point. 
And pretty much I think if people thought you were gay, they send you conversion camps and you'd be lobotomized or shock therapy. And that's so scary, you know? The first really important man in Stephen's life was a young man working on the administrative staff during Do I Hear a Waltz, to whom he became very much attracted to, and they had a brief but very intense love affair. He said, I guess the first person I had an, enough of an emotional crush on, we didn't know each other for very long, a few months maybe, when Trouble in Paradise struck. It wasn't anything specific, but it was my feeling of jealousy and possessiveness. I won't say flightiness or fickleness. I'm talking about in a general way, that I got upset. I got terribly upset and we had a bad falling out. I don't necessarily mean a big scene, but it was an upset, angry falling out in which neither of us were happy. I can't say that I was in love, but he continued to be the first person I fell apart with. I thought that I'd like to have a relationship. The affair threw him into a turmoil. And I thought, now's the time to go back to analysis. So, you know, he loved passionately. It was a storm. And then they parted. So that was it. That was the first person in his life that he was attracted to. After Do I Hear a Waltz, Sondheim devoted himself solely to writing both the music and the lyrics for theater. And in 1970, he began a collaboration with Harold Prince, resulting in a body of work that is considered to be one of the high watermarks of musical theater history. With critic Howard Kissel writing that the duo set one of the Broadway's highest standards. George Firth wrote 11 one-act plays for Kim Stanley. Anthony Perkins was interested in directing that Anthony Perkins and gave the material to Sondheim, who asked Carol Prince for his opinion. This is where the idea began. Stephen was confidently looking forward to the opening of the show, The Girl Upstairs, but then he lost his producer and his director was calling for further revisions. And so the future looked pretty bleak in July of 1967. Stephen contacted Prince on how to postpone, asking him to postpone the show company while he pulled together his forces in an attempt to launch the girl upstairs once more. Prince refused, saying, I'm working. I'm ready. My set is designed. My costumes are designed. You haven't written any goddamn music, but my show is ready. Stephen replied that he was much too discouraged and upset to work on company. Prince agreed to review The Girl Upstairs one more time, and he told Stephen that he would take it on, but he wanted to direct company first. Delighted and relieved, Stephen went back to work. The first show that Sondheim did with Hal at the helm was 1970's Company. I'm very excited about this. I hate this show so much. And yet you you're very intrigued by it. <laughs> I hate it so much. There's one song, and that's the one that we're gonna play at the end. There's one song that is your favorite. That's my favorite. I thought you only disliked one song. Uh, the Bobby Baby song sucks yeah. so bad. Oh god. Well, it's you know what? Song. It's not a good song. I love you, Stephen Sondheim. It's not a good song. It's so bad. And I had to sing it. Do you know how many times I heard the words Bobby Baby? <laughs> over the times that we were doing Not Your Mama's Broadway, I asked to be taken out of the piece because I was like, I can't do this anymore. I can't. This song is terrible. Please take me out. So in company, Robert is a bachelor around town and is being given a surprise 35th birthday by a group of friends, five married couples. As the evening develops, the audience beats each couple in turn, who are Sarah and Harry, who bicker about the fact that although he is supposedly no longer a drinker, 
Harry keeps sneaking to the bar and she attempts to break her diet. And that scene ends with a wrestling match because why not? Then there's Ginny and David who want to try to spoke pot with Robert and Susan and Peter who are interested in living together even though they're getting a divorce. And then there's Paul and Amy who are about to be married and she has a panic attack. That is my favorite song. The panic attack is my favorite song. It's beautiful. Finally, there's Joanne and Larry, perhaps the most spectacularly mismatched couple who rage themselves against each other. And it is in- expressed in an unpleasant drunken scene. So company and a funny thing happen on the way to form have certain similarities in the material. But if you take a song out of a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, you still have a complete show. The problem is if you do that in company, you wouldn't have a show because each of the songs are used as emotional transitions, like being alive. If you don't have the attitude of the couples toward Bobby, as in side by side or poor baby, you don't have any perspective about how these guys are looking at Bobby and how Bobby is looking at them and how they're looking at each other. So it's a spider web. You can't simply pluck out one song and it'd be okay. Whereas in A Funny Thing Happened to the Way of the Forum, they actually already gutted that show because it was four hours long and made it into a, still a complete show, despite what Milton Berle said. This one, you can't do that. Company lacked a straightforward plot. Instead, centering on themes such as marriage and the difficulty of making an emotional connection with another human. It opened on April 26, 1970 at the Alvin Theater, running for a very impressive 705 performances after just seven previews and won the Tony Award for Best Musical, Best Music, Best Lyrics. Company was revived on Broadway in 1995, 2006, and the 2020-2021 season. The previews for the last revival started in March 2020. Of course, it got shut down until November 2021 due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. In this revival, the main character was a woman. Yay! Wait, hold on. Question. Wait. So it won all these Tony Awards and ran for that long and it's been revived this many times. And this is the one you do not like? The first song sets the tone because I was in a show called Not Your Mama's Broadway where basically we did all the Broadway songs that nobody sings, but from the shows that people love. So if you're listening to the Broadway show Wicked, most people sing Defying Gravity. So in this one, I sang Popular. We did Diva's Lament instead of His Name is Lancelot or Find Your Grail from Spamalot. We did You'll Never Walk Alone. But like they chose songs that typically wouldn't be sung in a music revival. Kind of a B-sides album. Yeah, kind of. It's not the song that is your go-to song. It's the songs that other people love. Like I pitched to Paul before we moved. I was like, let me do Watch What Happens from the Newsies. And he was like, okay, well, what do people normally sing? And I'm like, Santa Fe. And he's like, all right, let's do it. But then we moved before the next Not Your Mama's Broadway. But they made us sing the first song from the show. And it's like, Bobby, 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 baby, Bobby, Bobby, Bobby. And it's just you saying the word Bobby a thousand times. And I hate it. So yes, that was the the taste in my mouth. But there is a song. And T, this is one of the rare instances 
where I actually want you to stay on the line and listen to the song. Okay. Because it is genius. And I'm going to play a very special version of the song. I think I know which one you're playing. And I'm looking forward to it. Yep. I'll tell you about it when I play it. The show's title has multiple facets. All importantly, appreciating its complexity. Company is the opposite of solitude and loneliness. It means being surrounded by friends and loved ones. But it's also what you call a theater group, is a theater company. So after holding the composer at arm's length, Sondheim's biographer, which we've actually pulled a lot of this information from, Meryl Seacrest wrote, the Broadway committee made up for its past omissions. It was Sondheim's first collaboration with book writer George Firth based on a short series, based on a series of short scenes about marriage that he had crafted but couldn't advance to production. It took producer Hal Prince to turn the material into a musical in his first collaboration with Stephen. Company earned Sondheim his first Tony Award for score and lyrics, making his arrival as a distinct central figure of the world in musical theater at age 41. He was finally acknowledged as a master of words and music. So the original 1970 production was actually nominated for a record-setting 14 Tony Awards, winning six. Company was among the first book musicals to deal with contemporary dating, marriage, divorce, and notably, lacking a linear plot. In a series of comedy vignettes, it follows Bobby interacting with his married friends who throw a party. In 1970, Sondheim produced Company which once again won him unanimous, in agreement by all, praise from the critics. The production was awarded the Drama Critics Antonio Award for Best Musical of the Season, and Sondheim received awards for Best Composer, Best Lyricist, and one critic commented that Company is absolutely first-rate, the freshest in years. This is a wonderful music score and one that Broadway has long needed. And that's where we're going to end today. T, do you have any thoughts? Not really. <laughs> cool. It's, All right. Well, I mean, this is totally out of my musical wheelhouse. I mean, very talented. A couple of them I was familiar with. The, some of the names that apparently got their starts or were, or were thrust onto a bigger stage, you know, through his productions is pretty impressive because you're throwing out what Anthony Perkins and Angela Lansbury, Lee Remick and Angela Lansbury and people like that. So the Karen the, Black. The, the quality of the, yeah, the, the quality of the people that that were in these productions is is th th absolutely through the roof. And I learned a little something about Broadway finances. You could play five hundred some shows and be, and be a financial flop. <laughs> I was would not have thought. Yeah, it it's rather impressive that you have to put on those shows for the producers. They back it, and they could lose their initial investment. The one show had one hundred fifteen producers to get three hundred fifty thousand dollars. They didn't make that back. That's scary. I mean, that's frightening. But yeah, I mean, it's a very expensive thing. And then uh, don't even get me started on like how that has been passed down generationally because you can buy tickets for Hamilton at the low, low price of $550. Like it's crazy, the price of Broadway today. Like it's it sucks because they're kind of pricing them out of the general public. $500 for a seat. Wow. So that's a, you can get those for one tenth of what it costs you to get good seats for Springsteen, man. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Wait, wait, that's, wait. Is Bruce Springsteen that much money? 
He's oh, he's, yeah. His tickets are yeah, insane. Yeah. Yeah. What? Oh, yeah. You've missed this. There, there's gigantic fan outrage over it. Yes, they're doing like premium pricing and stuff. And I can't think of... I've, there's another term, Will, that I'm missing. But 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 essentially, yes, the, the, the best seats for big artists, you know, you've seen some of the ticket prices for Taylor Swift. And I'm not talking about secondary market either. Not, not scalp tickets. You can buy tickets to go see Bruce Springsteen for $5,000. No, sir. Mm-mm. No. Like, mm-hmm. when we went to Do go better. see Elton John, we scrimped and saved up for those tickets. And they were how much, honey, for like where we were sitting? They were quite a bit. It was <laughs> a lot. They were quite a bit. Now, it's not Taylor Swift $20,000. It's not $5,000, yeah. No, Taylor was going for $20,000. That's just obnoxious. I'm going to sing songs about the common man who can't afford to come see me sing. Exactly. Jesus. Do better, guys. Do better. Oh. Well, Will, what do you have to say about this portion of Stevenson? I'm trying to do the best I can. <laughs> we're now in 1970 in episode three. So hey, I'm going to say yeah. we moved the needle really far this episode. We've gone through like five shows and like 12 years. Yeah. And it's interesting how you see like the ebbs and flows of Broadway too, where you have like sort of, you know, for lack of a term, the darker periods of Broadway. And then you have sort of these resurgence periods. And I think you're going to see Sondheim weave his way really through all of them, you know, all the way up through the 2010s. I mean, we can, we've already seen that now with, he's already a Broadway star at this point, but Lin-Manuel Miranda, when you think Lin-Manuel Miranda, you think in the Heights, you think Hamilton. You think about yeah. the highs that he reached. Now, <laughs> I saw Bring It On. Oh, I was with you when we saw that. And let me just tell you, it was fun. It was not good Broadway. And it's also interesting to see how forgiving or non-forgiving Broadway is. I mean, you can have, like you said, Stephen, even Stephen Sondheim, one of the greats, did not hit a home run every time. And this episode is proof of that. Yeah. And that's why I could have I could have dropped it. I could have gone... West Side Story, I could have gone Gypsy, I could have gone sure. Funny Thing Happened Way on the Way to the Forum, and then I could have gone straight to Company. But you're not getting a whole picture if I leave out Anyone Can Whistle. Yeah, but my favorite hasn't come up yet, and you know what that is. We're getting there. Yeah, I know. I know. And if you don't think that we're going to spend an entire episode on Into the Woods... <laughs> if you go back to previous series, LD, I mean, Will went there with the Caress of Steel, and I played a song from Van Halen 3, so I think you were kind of compelled to play something from uh, The Stinker. I, I thought you refused to play something from Van Halen 3. Did you actually play one track? We played Dirty Water. Oh, not Fire in the Hole? Because yeah, that one's not dreadful. Regrettably. Regrettably. Yeah. Regrettably. I'm certain that there will be another song that comes up that is from a stinker. I promise you. Because he does ebb and flow. Now, the thing is, we remember the flows. Into the Woods we're going to be talking about. And of course, Sweeney Todd. That's my favorite. <laughs> which also featured Angela Lansbury. So we're going to get into this. Now, those are the two shows that I'm going to spend a little bit more time on because I'm manic about this. Into the Woods is one of the most beautiful pieces of theater I think ever existed. Yeah, we'll pick up with all that because I do believe coming up next is going to be Sweeney Todd. Yes. All right, so if you think that we're doing a really good job and you would like to donate to the show, you can do so at patreon.com backslash rockandrollheaven. You can check us out on Twitter at rockandrollLT, our Instagram, rockandrollheaven.com, our Facebook, rockandrollheavenpod. I'm not going to say our website, but you can check out our last episode where we did our Slap Nuts four-year anniversary pod day. And 
Aaron actually set our website. So you can go back and listen to that episode. That if you really want to check our website out. Thank you, Aaron. It's also in the show notes, but you can check out our TikTok at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. And you can email us at Rock and Roll Heaven LT at gmail.com. Seriously, if you're a piano player, tell us how much that hurts. Uh, and you can also check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. And if you happen to be in the Nashville area, please check out Rock and Pod. Let me just double check that email or that that website, uh, which is uh, com, And I'll put that also in the show notes. Uh, come out and see at least one member of the Rock and Roll Heaven family. Uh, that's going to be taking place March the 17th through the 19th. And it's uh, the ultimate weekend gathering for musical artists, podcast vendors, and fans. And again, that will be taking place in Nashville. We would love to see you out there. I will should maybe be available for photos with my beautiful mug. Um, kidding. We all know that uh, Will's got the chops to be the model. Um, <laughs> but uh, again, thank you guys so much for checking out this episode. Please make sure to check out the next episode where we pick up where company left off with Stephen Sondheim part four. All right. So, Mr. TJ2, do you have anything you'd like to say to the audience? Bye, everybody. All right. Will the Thrill. Closing thoughts. Closing thoughts. I'm just going to say toodles. (laughs) Great. All right, guys. So what we're ending the show with is not the original Broadway cast. What this is, is a live staging of Company starring the amazing, the beautiful, the incomparable talent who also shares a birthday with me and is one of the greatest actresses of our time, not comedic actress, actress, Miss Madeline Kahn. Yes. And the song is from Company, I'm Not Getting Married Today. So thanks again, guys. We'll see you next week. Enjoy. I can't find-
They're on the dresser, right next to my suicide note. Listen, everybody, look, I don't know what you're waiting for. A wedding? What's a wedding? It's a prehistoric ritual where everybody promises fidelity forever, which is maybe the most horrifying word I've ever heard, and which is followed by a honeymoon where suddenly he'll realize he's saddled with a nut and want to kill me, which he should. Thanks a bunch, but I'm not getting married, so go have lunch, because I'm not getting married. You've been grand, but I'm not getting married, and don't just stand there, I'm not getting married, and don't tell Paul that I'm not getting married today. Go, can't you go? Why is nobody listening? Goodbye, go and cry at another person's wake. If you're quick for a kick, you could pick up a christening. But please, on my knees, there's a human life at stake. Listen, everybody, I'm afraid you didn't hear her. Do you want to see a crazy lady fall apart in front of you? It isn't only Paul who may be ruining his life. You know, a both of us, he's losing our identities. I telephoned my analyst about it, and he said to see him Monday, but by Monday, I'll be floating in the husband with the other garbage. I'm not well, so I'm not getting married. You've been swell, but I'm not getting married. Thank you all, but I'm not getting married. Clear the hall, because I'm not getting married. And don't tell Paul, but I'm not getting married today. achieve the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who kill their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. 
Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.